Swami welcomes you with great love and great respect to meditative living with Swami Shivananda Giri. Thank you, thank you, thank you for allowing this Swami to be of service. At this time, whether you're listening, well, in whatever way you might listen, it's exceedingly possible that this recording <laughs> will live and be functional after this Swami body has left. So we'll see what happens. Uh, today, we begin another series of a text. We've already got the Chittakasha Gita, of Bhagwan Nityananda of Ganesh Puri, who was the guru of this Swami's guru's guru. <laughs> okay. Um, then we did the authoritative Guru Gita, which was done under the direction and close supervision of this Swami's guru, His Holiness Mahamandeleshwar Paramahamsa Swarupananda Vishwaguru Maharaj Swami of Los Angeles, California, who in 2007 became the very first white-skinned 
American born human being inducted into the rank of the 80 Maha Mandeleshwars, whose dharma it is to disseminate and defend Sanatana Dharma, which is the correct name for what is more commonly referred to as Hinduism, but the appropriate name is Sanatana Dharma, which in English would translate most correctly as the eternal natural way. Now, after having had a conversation with the guru that we lovingly refer to as HH, which of course stands for His Holiness, he decided the next text that should be covered would be Gyaneshwar's Gita, which, for those as yet unfamiliar, is a commentary on the Bhagavad Gita, which was composed in the year 1290 of the common era in North India by a young man at the age of 19 whose name was Gyaneshwar. And as an introduction, just sort of setting the stage for this text, we're going to cover the writing of Swami Abhayananda, who wrote Gyaneshwar, the life and works of the celebrated 13th century Indian mystic poet. That's the title of this work that the Swami will read from today, just basically setting the stage, giving you some understanding of what was going on at that time in the life of this human being who actually lived, who actually became enlightened and liberated, and actually, he didn't write Gyanishvara's Gita. He spoke, and this will all be explained. Let's begin with the story of Vital and Rakumabai. Vital was Gyaneshwar's father, and Rakumabai was his mother. In the year 1265, in the north of India, young Vital who was then in his teens, could be seen running along the dirt road of Apegayan behind a small band of itinerant monks who had just entered the town. When these sannyasins, or swamis, passed through Apegayan, covered with ashes and carrying their begging bowls and their danda staffs, Vital's mother 
would rush out of her house, calling out, Vital, Vital, come home at once. I need you here this minute. Because she knew Vital loved to run after the wandering sadhus who would occasionally walk through their town in their pale orange robes and their matted hair and their long beards. Vital loved to sit with them and listen to their mysterious talk of Maheshwar, the great lord of the universe. He always brought the swamis what he could, a few chapatis, a mango, some jackfruit, and they would allow him to stay among them as they would eat, and he would listen with rapt attention to their stories. Vital's mother knew that he would gladly go off with these mad monks and take up their life of wandering. But Vital was the son of Govinda, the headman of the village. And Vital also would become the headman of the village one day with a good wife and many children. That was a good life for a man, not this good-for-nothing life of wandering and hunger and pretentious holiness. She felt a little constriction in her heart whenever she imagined her son running off one day with these godforsaken bearded men. It was just such fears which prompted Vital's parents to arrange for the boy's marriage to a lovely girl from the town of Alandi, the daughter of Sitopant, who was the head man of that town. It was a very good marriage for both children, and everyone turned out for the large wedding celebration between the two leading families of Apageon and Alandi. Vital was 18, and Rakumabai was 13, a mere child and still very much attached to her parents. Therefore, it was only natural that immediately after their marriage, Vital and Raku went to live at the home of her parents, Sidopant and Kamaladev, in the village of Alandi. Raku was a good wife to Vital, and she loved him with all her heart. But Vital was scarcely at home. He was always meeting with the temple priests, or studying the books that the priests gave him, or engaged in conversations deep into the night with whatever scholar or swami happened to be passing through town. And in the early hours of the morning, he would arise before Raku awoke and go out amongst the trees to meditate in the silent hours before dawn. One day, however, instead of rushing off in the morning as he usually did, Vital remained sitting quietly before Raku as she awoke. Raku knew immediately 
he had something very important to say to her. It was then that Vital told her of his decision to renounce his place in her heart and to leave home and become a sannyasin, a swami, a renunciant to study the sacred scriptures under the tutelage of a master in Benares to seek salvation from the sorrows of this worldly existence in meditation and prayer. Raku could not believe her ears. She was to become a childless widow at the age of 14? What was he saying? Could he wish to leave this wonderful life in their beautiful home? She wept and pleaded with him. But finally, she saw he was not to be dissuaded. When her father heard of it, he became very angry and stalked about yelling at everyone. That night, he sat up arguing with Vital until quite late. But Raku knew it was of no use. In the morning, Vital put a few clothes into a cotton bag and Raku, wiping the tears from her eyes, began making chapatis for him to take on his journey to Kashi, the distant holy city of Benares. Quote, there is a great ashram there, he told her. That is where I am going. It is the ashram of Ramanand Swami. If he will accept me, I will stay there as his disciple and serve him until I have attained Brahman. He took up his bag, stuffed with the chapatis and some bananas that Raku had put there, and holding his palms together before his face, he made namaskar to his wife, and then went off through the town toward the road that led east to Benares. Rakumabai stayed with her parents, who did their best to bring some cheer back into her life. But Raku had suffered a deep wound and found it impossible to recover her happiness. She loved Vital and their life together. And now she had neither Vital nor the children she had longed to bear. She fell into dark moods of depression from which no one was able to rouse her. As for Vital, he was successful in convincing Ramananda Swami of his sincere desire to know God and of his willingness to serve and to learn. As it happened, however, Swami Ramananda was just preparing a tour of some monasteries to which he had been invited as an honored guest, for he was well known throughout the region as a holy and learned scholar and speaker. 
And it was not long after Vital had been accepted at the ashram in Benares and had passed through the initiation into brahmacharya, the prerequisite to sannyas, or swamihood, that Swami Ramanand left for his tour, which led him through the cities of Prayag, Bilsa, Devgiri, Nasik, and Alandi. In Alandi, it was the custom when a famous or highly revered person came to town for the family of the headman, who was the chief official and representative of the government in the town, to entertain and house the guest of honor in his own home. And so, when Swami Ramananda eventually reached the town of Alandi on the Indrayani River, he was escorted to the home of Sitopant, who, along with his entire family, including Rakumabai, was standing before their home respectfully awaiting the Swami's arrival. He was duly welcomed and shown where he could rest and refresh himself from his long journey. At the evening meal, Swami Ramananda was given the place of honor with Raku seated just opposite him. The Swami, according to custom, gave his blessings to Siddhopant's family and to Rakumabai, whose red-bordered sari and vermilion mark on her forehead marked her as a married woman. He said, May your children grow to be noble and saintly examples to all the world. You'll have to forgive this, Swami, because as is going to happen a great number of times in the presentation of this information, tears of bhakti come. <laughs> this is devotion and joy, which is too much for the body to withhold, and it comes out as bhakti tears. And it's a joyful thing, but it happens quite naturally. <laughs> so, the Swami says, his blessing and Raku, with tears forming in her eyes, bowed her head, saying, I pray, Swamiji, that your words prove true, but I am childless, and Vital, my husband, has gone to Kashi to become a sannyasin. <gasps> Without providing you with children? Yes, sir. Could this be the Vital of Alandi who came to stay at my ashram just a few months ago? Yes, Swamiji, he is my husband. Swami Ramananda squinted up his eyes, looking for some time at Rakumabai, who was controlling her tears as best she could. 
then he said, my dear, my words to you were not false. Vital will return to you and you will have your children. In the morning, as Swami Ramananda was preparing to leave for his journey home, Raku fell prostrate at his feet and touched his sandals. As he lifted her up, he said, there is nothing more to cry about. You and Vital will produce beautiful children whose fame and glory will shine like the sun and stir the hearts of men for all time. Within a month's time thereafter, Vital returned to Alandi as his guru had instructed him to do and resigned now to living the life of a householder, he went to work for his father. There, too, he earnestly set about the task of producing the children his guru had instructed him to father. The first child was a boy, born in the year 1269 of the Common Era. So quiet, and calm he was, so pure and undisturbed by even the flicker of a thought were his wide, unblinking brown eyes that Vital named him Nivriti, which means without the stirring of a thought. Two years later, in 1271, a second boy was born. This one, thought Vital, has the look of wisdom. His face shines with a kind of glow, resembling the glow of the Gyanis, the knowers of God. I shall call him Gyanishvar, the Lord of Knowledge. One year thereafter, a girl was born to Vital and the Raku. She was, from her very birth, independent, indrawn, aloof from everyone and everything. Though she was very beautiful, with her wispy coal black hair and golden complexion, Vital felt sure she would never be shared by anyone, but would always remain pure and free. He named her Muktabai which means sister freedom. And in 1273, yet another boy was born. It was Raku, the mother, who chose the name this time. She called him Sopanadev, one of the names of Lord Krishna. Only a day's ride to the north of Apegyan was the palatial city of Devgiri. And in the year of Gyaneshvar's birth, the kingdom of Devgiri saw the coronation of a new king. In 1271, Ramachandra, 
known affectionately by his people as Ramadeva, was crowned Raja of all the Yadava territories. Up until 1261, Ramachandra's father, Krishna Yadava, had ruled. But he had become old and infirm before Ramachandra became of age to inherit the throne. And King Krishna had appointed his own brother, Mahadev, as temporary heir to the throne at that time. Then, when Mahadev died in 1271, instead of turning the throne over to Ramachandra, who had since come of age and was the rightful heir, he appointed his own son, Amana, to the throne. Ramachandra was enraged at his uncle's deceit, but he lacked an army of necessary strength to take the throne by force. Determined, however, to reclaim his rightful heritage, he devised a strategy. He sent a few of his soldiers into the court during the festive celebration disguised as dancers in the musical program. And, as a signal, they took the guards by surprise. Ramachandra then captured his cousin, Amana, had him blinded and later executed, and thus acquired the throne of Devgiri for himself. Over the 80 years of Yadava rule, the kingdom of Devgiri had accumulated a fortune beyond imagination. Vaults full of precious stones and gold and silver in unbelievable quantities were kept in the king's possession at the palace. Some of it had been acquired by plunder, much of it from revenues collected from the territories belonging to the vast kingdom. In the fertile plains of Deccan, from the mountains in the north to the Krishna River in the south, rich crops of rice, corn, lentils, sugarcane, cotton, and spices were grown in abundance. In the city, manufacturers of brass, silver and gold articles, makers of silk and cotton cloths, artisans, builders, and architects all flourished. It was a busy city of commerce and a center of culture, and the reign of Ramachandra signaled its golden age. Architecture and the arts set new standards Wealth increased throughout the land, and the people were prosperous and content. Ramachandra was ruler of the greatest kingdom in India, the most impregnable fortress, the most prized jewel of all India during his long reign. He was to prove himself a just, innovative, and popular king. At the time of his coronation, he won the support of the people and the religious community 
by building three villages of houses for 71 Brahmins and later donating a large amount of gold to the temple of Vitala at Pandarpur for its upkeep. Young Gyaneshwar would later write of him, Sri Ramachandra, the king of the universe, ruled with justice. He was the delight of the race of the Yadavas and the abode of all the arts. Now, Nivriti finds his guru. Despite the general prosperity of the kingdom, prospects were rather bleak for Vital and Raku in their city. In India, to this day, when a person is excommunicated from the caste into which he was born, he is ostracized from all social contact and deprived of his livelihood. No one will eat with him or share water with him or marry his children. He is avoided by everyone, pointed at with scorn, and regarded even by the people of the lowest castes as an untouchable, an outcast. Such a sentence was passed upon Vital by the chief Brahmins of the city. Vital, they said, had voluntarily abandoned his Brahmin caste when he submitted to the Brahmacharya initiation, during which the sacred thread of the caste was cut along with the tuft of hair on the crown of his head. According to the Dharma Shastras, the laws of caste, by his return to life as a householder, Vital had sacrificed his brahmacharya status as well. He was now an outcast, and his children were also outcasts. Vital protested this decision, but to no avail. And when Nibriti, his eldest son, reached the age of eight, and it was time for his upanayana, the ceremony for the investiture of the sacred thread of the Brahmin caste, the priests of their city refused to perform this. However, Vital knew a Brahmin priest from Alandi who now lived in Nasik and who was aware of the strange circumstances whereby he had returned to his family at the direction of his guru. And this priest, sympathetic to Vital's plight, had consented to perform the sacred thread ceremony for his son. So, while Raku remained at home with the younger children, Vital set out with Nivriti on foot to the city of Nasik. Nasik, known as the Kashi of western India for its many ancient and holy temples, 
lies like Apegayan on the banks of the Gadavari River. Apegayan is a small village and Nasik is just 25 miles northwest along a narrow, dusty road, scarcely more than a path, which, at that time, made its way through a deep, lush jungle, teeming with parrots and minor birds, monkeys, hyenas, elephants, and tigers. Starting early in the morning, Vital and Nivriti made it to Nasik by evening of the next day. And the ceremony was performed the following day. The ceremony itself did not take long, and Nivriti understood none of it, as the priest chanted in Sanskrit all the way throughout. There were a few balls of rice offered to his ancestors, a sip of some sort of bitter drink, more chanting in Sanskrit, parts of which Nivriti was asked to repeat and the thread was placed over his left shoulder. Vital paid the priest, and they made their namaskars to the priest's small murti, or a murti is like a... Hmm, what's the word you want to use here? It's a setup, <laughs> an arrangement of a holy place where you put things which are highly valued. So, Vital, after paying the priest, did the, they did their namaskars to the priest's murti of Shiva and then departed. On their return journey, they made a stop at a small village along the way called Nevasa. Vital had purchased the coconut in Nasik, which he now offered at the foot of a small murti in the square, Devi Temple, facing the road on the outskirts of town. Then, taking his son's hand, Vital led him to the small monastery building behind the temple. There, standing with two children, four or five years old, was a kindly-faced man of middle age, wearing an ochre lungi wrapped around his waist. As the man saw Vital, his eyes lit up in recognition. Turning toward him, he brought his hands together before his face, making namaskar. Vital! the man called warmly. Om namo narayana, said Vital, returning the salutation. The man clasped Vital to his chest. How are you, Vitalji? I am very well, Swamiji, Vital laughed. I'd like you to meet my eldest son, Nibriti. Nivriti bowed his head and made his namaskar to the Swami. This, said Vital, is Swami Satchidananda. He is an old friend. Ah, what a handsome boy, Vital, 
said the Swami, appraising Nivriti. And intelligent too, is he not? Indeed he is, Vital replied proudly. And I have three more at home, just as handsome and just as intelligent. Four? Ah, Vital, has it been so long since we left Kashi? It is nearly nine years now, Swamiji. The Swami turned to the small children pulling at his legs. These, he said, are my children. Well, at least for today. While their parents work in the fields, I care for these little rascals. Nabriti and the children had been sizing each other up. Now the little ones, giggling, ran off toward the rear of the monastery building. Go along with them, Nabriti, Vital said, patting the boys back. The Swami and I would like to talk. Nabriti ran after the giggling children while the Swami led Vital inside the monastery. A little while later, the Swami had prepared lunch for his guests, and they all sat down to a dish of rice, a thick lentil soup, chapatis, and a bit of mango pickle. Nibriti listened while his father and the Swami spoke of their days together at the ashram of Ramananda. And when they had finished their lunch and washed their mouths out, Vital told the Swami that they would have to leave right away if they were to make it home by nightfall. And so they made their farewells to the Swami and to Nevasa and started out once again on their journey home. For Nivriti, the long trek through stretches of wilderness was a great adventure, as wondrous as the visit to Nasik with its many beautiful temples and endless streets. But, as the day wore on, he saw only the monotonous, dusty road in front of him, and his father had to call him repeatedly to hasten his steps. Vital was well aware of the dangers of the jungle after nightfall, and though they were still far from home, darkness had already begun to fall. All at once, a tiger appeared in the path before them. Vital shouted behind him, Run, Liberty! Run into the forest! Liberty ran and kept on running, blindly past trees and then up a rocky slope and got in a place between two large rocks where he could hide. As he crawled into what looked like a crevice, he found himself entering a large cave. Just then, the shadowy figure of a man sitting inside the cave lifted up its head, and showing a large and delightful grin, he raised a hand in salutation to Nibriti. Come in, my boy, the man said. Don't be frightened. Nibriti crouched just inside the cave, breathlessly, while the man inside produced a flame seemingly from nowhere and passed the flame to a candle nearby. In the growing light, Nivriti could see the man was huge. He was a powerfully built man with a large belly, 
but his face was so gentle, like a child in its radiant delight. Navriti could not feel afraid. The man sat on a deerskin, wearing nothing at all on his body. Navriti recognized by his beard and piled up hair, he was one of the holy men, as those his father had pointed out to him in Nasik. The man cocked his head to one side and smiled at Navriti. Navriti thought he had never seen such a kindly-looking man. Then the man motioned for Navriti to come forward and take a seat near him. Navriti moved cautiously. What brings you to this cave, my son? The man asked. A tiger chased me. Navriti said in a weak voice, A tiger? Really? Well, <laughs> he won't bother you here. You're welcome to stay the night if you like. But my father will be worried. And he told the man of his journey with his father to Nasik and how they were just on the way home. After hearing his tale, the man thought for a moment, then said, it's dark now in the jungle. I'll take you to your village in the morning. For tonight, you can remain here. Will that be all right? Navriti wanted very much to stay in the cave. Yes, sir, I would like to stay. He knew somehow that his father was all right and that it was okay for him to stay. There was something magical about this cave and the man that puzzled Navriti. He had never known such a pleasant atmosphere or such an inner gladness as he had experienced since he came into the cave. What sort of magical world had he stumbled upon? Who was this man? Who are you? He asked the man. My name is Gahimanath, he said in his low, pleasant voice. Are you a yogi? Navriti asked. <laughs> it was a word his father had used when he pointed out the wandering holy men to him. Again, Gahinanath laughed while his big belly shook. Navriti couldn't help smiling himself. I am a Nath. My guru is Goraknath, and his guru was Matsyendranath. We are yogis, yes, and you too are a yogi, and I am your guru. Do you understand? Navriti looked at Gehini's eyes, and again he wore that look of care and love that he had seen before, but now it seemed two rays of shimmering light came from the yogi's eyes into Navriti's own, entering deep into his very soul and awakening in Navriti a feeling he had never known before. There was for a moment a trembling within, like fear, and then it was gone. And he felt light as a feather and exhilarated happy. Gahinanath's hand floated out gently and rested coolly on his brow. 
and Navriti was flooded with memories of this very same scene, but from long, long ago. Something altogether unexpected was happening to him. He remembered that this cave was his home. This man, his dearest friend. Heavenly joys came flooding into his heart, and he could not hold back the tears which burst forth as though a river had been unleashed behind his eyes. Nebriti lay for some while curled up on the ground. He'd been riding high on the shoulders of Gehini, high on a mountaintop, while purple clouds swirled around them and bolts of lightning split the skies. He remembered the brilliant light, so lovely, so cool. And Gehinenov was bending over him now, covering him with a soft tiger skin. Nevriti turned on his side and closed his eyes. Dawn was just streaking the sky with lavender and gold when Gyaneshwar returned from the well with a jug of water and saw his brother running up the path to their home. Father! Father! Gyaneshwar shouted. It's Nevriti! And as both Vital and Raku rushed out of their house, Nivriti ran toward them and hugged his mother around the waist. Where on earth have you been? We've been up the whole night searching for you, his father demanded. Father, I ran and ran and climbed into a big cave. Well, thank God you're all right, exclaimed Raku. I searched and shouted half the night and was preparing to start out again. Vital put in, but just then he saw the huge yogi standing in the path before him. Father, said Nivriti proudly, this is Gahini. He brought me back. He lives in the cave I found. Vital went forward at once, bowing to touch the toes of Gehinemath, and raised his fingers to his forehead. You are Gahini, the famous yogi of the Nath lineage? Yes, father, said Gahini, in a voice so sweet that Raku, who had been holding her breath in fear, now expelled it and came forward to touch his feet also. This is my wife, Rakumabai, said Vital. We are very grateful to you for bringing Nivriti back to us, Yogiji. May we offer you something to drink? Please, honor us by taking a little tea with us. Vital led the way inside. While Raku scrambled to prepare a hot tea for Gahininath. As they sat and talked, Vital related to the yogi Gahini the story of his discipleship to Swami Ramananda and his subsequent return. Nivriti and Gyandev respectfully remained outside with the younger children, Muktabai and Sopan, but they leaned close to the window listening to the conversation between their father and Gahininath. 
when Navriti heard Gahini say, Navriti is an exceptional child, I have offered to become his guru. Will you allow him to visit me on occasion? There was a moment of silence. Raku, stirring a pot of sweet porridge over the fire, stopped, holding her breath once more. It would be a great honor to our family, said Vital, if you would serve as guru to Navriti. He may visit you whenever you wish. Outside the window, Navriti hugged Gyandev and jumped up and down with him, allowing a little squeal of delight to pass his lips. Then, rushing back to the window, he listened once more as Vital asked, Will you honor his brother Gyanishvar also with your grace, Maharaj? Again, Raku stopped her stirring, and her eyes began to blink nervously. When Vital told him, Oh, Gahininath asked, How old is Gyanishvar? Vital told him, Six years. Gahini smiled and let out a deep, Hmm. Then he said, let Nivriti be his guru. I will teach Nivriti, and Nivriti can teach your Ganeshwar. As you wish, said Vital, and he was greatly pleased. Raku stopped blinking and brought the porridge in bowls, placing one before the yogi and one before her husband. Outside the window, Nivriti and Ganeshwar danced round and round, holding each other in a brotherly embrace. Since their trip to Nasik, Vital noticed the men of the village were even more determined to scorn him and his family. They were resentful of the fact that he had gone to another town and obtained for his son the ceremony of the sacred thread, despite their decision, and regarded his refusal to acquiesce to the elders as a grave insult and an offense. Recently, Vital's father had reluctantly announced to him that he could no longer allow him to work for him. The elders had pronounced against it, and all the people of the village were refusing to deal with him. Vital now had no work, for in the eyes of the people, he was no longer of the Brahmin caste, and neither could he claim any other caste as his own. Soon, there was no food. Vital was forced to ask his own father and the father of Raku for charitable assistance, but this was not the worst of it. Because he had obeyed his guru, Swami Ramananda, his wife and the children were now branded untouchables. No other villages, villagers or children would come near them. Even the low caste children, such as the cobbler's children and those of the sweepers, 
jeered at them, often throwing cow dung at the younger ones. Nebriti and Gyandev seemed not to mind so much the unfriendliness of their peers. They were far too preoccupied with their yoga and with their excursions into the forest. But Vital knew that as they grew older, this would become more painful. They would find no way to live among the people of their town. It was all his fault. He was a millstone around their necks, depriving them of any chance for even a little happiness in life. Such were the thoughts in Vital's mind as he went one morning down the path to the river to bathe. Gyaneshwar and Nivriti, however, were unaware of their father's distress and the torment he felt over the prospect of his children's future. They scarcely paid any attention to the nasty pranks of the other children of the village and were only vaguely aware something was off. It was only when they went to the temple to bow to the statue of the Devi, the goddess, that they felt most strongly the strange, unwarranted hatred of others toward them. For the priest would not allow them to enter the temple as they had before. And he shouted at them, calling them names. But they were so engrossed in their sadhana, their spiritual practices, that they scarcely gave any thought to the strange behavior of the, vis of the villagers. Once a week, sometimes twice, Nivriti went to see Gahininath in his cave in the jungle. There he would stay for the whole day while Gahini taught him, not from books, but from the store of his accumulated knowledge and experience. Nivriti learned of the various postures and exercises for the purification of the nerves to better enable him to meditate. He learned how to sit for long periods in the Vajrasana posture with his back straight and his gaze indrawn. He learned to hold his mind fixed on the mantra Gahini had taught him to use as a means of stilling and focusing his thoughts. Then, after their meditation together, Nivriti would hear the stories from Gehini of the ancient yogic scriptures or from his own experience in his youthful travels around India. He told him about Krishna and his teachings in the Bhagavad Gita. He told him of the ancient sages who lived even before Rama and the wicked Ravana. And above all, he taught him to love God above everything and to understand his ways, seeing God in every creature and everything that appeared on earth. For the rest of the week, Navriti became guru to Gyangyaneshvar. In the early mornings, long before the sun came up, they would sit together, meditating, in stillness, on the glimmering light that shone within them. And then, after 
their morning tea, they would run off to a secret spot in the forest where they would practice their yogic exercises and where later Gyaneshwar would listen to the stories and teachings Nivriti passed on to him. And there they were in this beautiful secret spot deep in the green jungle when their father's lifeless body dripping with water was carried by the villagers up the path to his house where Raku stood speechless and horrified with one hand over her mouth, the other clutching her bosom. In 1287, the mother, Raku, also passed away. Since her husband's death, Raku had become progressively weaker. And when the fever epidemic hit their village, she caught it and seemed to just give up, dying two days later. The children were now orphans, remaining temporarily in the care of their grandparents. Navriti was now 18, Gyandev was 16, Muktabai and Sopan were 15 and 14, respectively. They were exceedingly handsome children, each one of them. Navriti, a Capricorn, was tall, lean, and strong. In demeanor, he was sober and austere. He was a yogi. Navriti's mind was continually engrossed in contemplation, continually discriminating between the eternal and the non-eternal. When someone spoke to him, he looked at them through half-closed eyes as though struggling to see through the appearance to the eternal reality beyond. He was very strict with himself and followed an austere discipline giving little time to frivolity. He could be rude to those who attempted to draw him out of his inward focus. Gyanishvar, on the other hand, was a devotional type, drawn to the worship of God in some form or other. He was a Leo and greatly attracted the to the idealized stories of the gods and goddesses who walked the land long, long ago, such as Rama and Krishna. His was the vision of a poet, a lover, and his only discipline was to see everything before him as a manifestation of God. He had transferred much of his devotion to Navriti, whom he regarded as his divinely appointed guru. Though he was also his brother, Nivriti had become, in Ganeshwar's eyes, a very special manifestation of God, a divine personage who was to be worshipped and served as the Lord himself. Muktabai, a Pisces, was deep as the ocean and beautiful as a young goddess. Her dark, luxuriant hair haloed a face of angelic beauty. Yet she was always modest and unassuming. She had a quiet, confident air about her, even at so young an age. And her one desire 
and religious practice was to serve her brothers in whatever way she could. Muktabai was their cook, their maid, their nurse, and their confidant. And this was the means of her adoration and the practice of her devotion to God through the elder brothers. Sopan, the youngest, was a cancer. He was a boy of many moods, and though he idolized his brothers and wished he could be more like them, he was often swayed by irresistible moods which caused him to become confused and distracted. This often resulted in some wild fit of rebellion followed by a deep sense of sorrow and guilt that pitched him into a prolonged period of silent withdrawal. He found he could best control this wild shifting of mood by following Muktabai's lead, remaining silent and giving himself generously in humble service. Since Vital's death, the attitude of the villagers toward the children had not changed one bit. They were still regarded as castless and illegitimate. And now that Raku was also gone, Nivriti had become the head of the family and was expected to provide for the welfare of them all. He recognized it was clearly time to do whatever could be done to restore the status of the family. It was decided that Nivriti and Gyandev would go into the town a few miles away and petition the elders there to give them a letter certifying to their purity and their membership in the Brahmin caste. There was much at stake. With such a letter, they could go elsewhere where their father's infractions were completely unknown and they could begin anew. They would be able to secure positions as priests or teachers and muktabai would be eligible to marry if she so choose. But Nivriti would do nothing until he had spoken to Gahinina. With his blessing, their endeavor could not fail. Without it, it was a matter of great uncertainty. One month after their mother, Raku's body had been cremated, Nivriti went to see Gahinina. When he arrived, he found Gahini lounging outside the cave with several young disciples sitting around him. Nivriti approached and knelt to his knees before his guru, taking the dust from his feet and touching it to his forehead. Gahini smiled happily at his disciple and motioned for him to sit alongside the others. I was just speaking of my plans to travel south, he said. Govinda will accompany me, and Nityananda will remain in my cave while I am gone. Nivriti suddenly realized a great change was about to occur in his life. Some unavoidable destiny was depriving him, not only of his parents, but of his guru as well. And when will you be returning, Babaji? he asked as calmly as he could manage. Gahini wagged his head without comment. 
He looked at Navriti for a long time with that stern, concentrated gaze that Navriti knew so well. A searching gaze that went deep into him, beyond the boundaries of shifting time. Then Gahini rose suddenly from his seat and beckoned Navriti to follow him. He walked along along the path that led to the roadway, and when they reached it, he took Navriti's hand in his own. I am going to visit many places, he said. Who knows when I will come back to this place. And you? You have many responsibilities now, do you not? Yes, Gurudev. They walked on now, slowly. Gahini spoke again. It would be good, Navriti, if you could clear up this family problem. Go to that village and talk to the pandits there. Ask them to grant you a certificate of caste. Then, take your family to Nasik. Yes, to Nasik. Everything will be fine. Gahini had never before offered directions to him regarding his worldly life, and Navriti knew that his guru's words carried the power of destiny and were unfailing in their blessing. Tears were now beginning to blur Nevriti's vision. Am I never going to see you again, Guruji? He asked in a wavering voice. Gahini patted the hand of Nevriti, then hugged him to his chest. Of course you will. Do you think I will ever leave you completely? Then he took Nevriti by the shoulders at arm's length, looking knowingly and lovingly into his eyes. Go now, and do as I have told you. Everything will be fine. You and your family will be taken care of. God will bless you. Nibriti brought his hands together before him and made namaskar to his guru. A bitter lump grew in his throat, and tears were beginning to flood his eyes. Go on now, said Gahimi motioning him away with a swishing motion of his hand. As Nivriti turned and disappeared down the roadway, Gahini muttered, God will bless you, my son. Well, to cut this a bit short, they went as Gahininath had instructed. And Beyond all hope and chance, they talked the elders into giving them their certificate. And with their certificate, they packed their few possessions and cloth bags and the four youngsters set out one morning on the road to Nasik, as Gehininath had instructed. It was a longer journey than the one Nivriti had taken with his father many years ago because they needed to stop often to rest from the burdens they carried. It was late, and the sun had already set below the horizon when they arrived at the junction of the rivers Pravara and Gadavari. Nivriti recalled the monastery of Nevasa, 
was just a short way. We'll stop at the monastery of Swami Satchidananda, he told the others. We should be able to spend the night there. When they arrived, it was nearly dark, but they could see no light in the monastery. Perhaps it's deserted, Ganeshwar said. No one answered his knock. Nivriti tried the door, found it open, and led the way inside. There was no one there, but there were mats on the floor for sleeping, and to one side, a small stove with a chimney. We'll sleep here tonight, said Nivriti. Bring everything inside. Gyaneshwar found a tinderbox on the cook stove and told Sopan to gather some sticks for a fire. Navriti, still exploring the monastery, went to a door at the rear and peered into a small, dark room. Gyandev! he shouted. Come here! And he disappeared into the room. When Gyaneshwar entered, he saw a man lying on a mat on the floor with Navriti kneeling over him. It's the Swami, Nivriti said. He's sick. They soon had a candle burning and were able to see more clearly. The Swami was occasionally conscious, but he was delirious with fever. Nivriti stayed with him, holding him, while Gyandev managed to get a fire going in the cook stove. Sopan went for water while Muktabai rummaged in their bags for her herbs and cooking utensils. The boys rinsed the Swami's face and brow with cool water, and Muktabai prepared a soup of thick rice broth and herbs. Sitting him up, they managed to get him to swallow some of the hot liquid. When he would take no more, they laid him down and covered him well with some of the clothing that they had unpacked. And then, they too took some nourishment of rice and cold chapatis, which they had brought with them. Though the Swami's fever seemed to have broken and he was sleeping peacefully, Ganeshwar thought it best to remain with him through the night. And so he spread his mat in the back room alongside the Swami, while the others, exhausted from their long journey, made their beds in the larger room. In the morning, the Swami was given more of the hot broth, while Sopan was sent into the village to purchase some milk. The Swami seemed to be reviving now, and Nivriti and Gyanadev watched over him, soothing him and keeping him covered and warm. When Sopan returned with the milk, Muktabai warmed it and made a milk tea, which seemed to have a very good effect on the Swami. He sat there, looking around at the children hovering over him. Who are you? <laughs> he finally managed to ask. Don't you remember me? asked Nivriti. My name is Nivriti. I came here once with my father, Vital, many years ago. And these are my brothers and sister. Nivriti. Yes, of course I remember. Where is your father? He died quite a few years ago, Swamiji. I'm sorry, he said. This is Gyaneshwar, 
He stayed in here with you last night. And this is Muktabai. And this is Sopan, said Nivriti, pulling each of them forward in turn. We were on our way to Nasik, and since it was getting late, we stopped here for the night. I'm very glad you did, said the Swami. I've been alone here for quite some time, and I haven't been feeling well at all. Just rest, said Yandev. Muktabai spoke from the doorway. If you think you could eat something solid, Swamiji, I will bring you some rice. Yes, I think so, Swami replied. And they knew then he was going to be all right. In the next few days, the Swami gradually regained his strength and was moving about slowly on his own. Muktabai cooked chapatis and rice and for him, and brought him ginger tea in the mornings. She and Sopan attacked the monastery with brooms and cleaned it out, aired the bedding, and washed the Swami's clothes in the river and laid them out in the sun to dry. Nabriti and Gyandev had gone to Nasik, which was only a short distance away, and spoke with some of the council elders and had shown them the letter of certification there was no work for them just now, they said. There were already too many young Brahmins around seeking work as priests and assistants. Nivriti and Gyaneshwar returned to the monastery in rather low spirits after traipsing around Nasik all day. They had inquired at all the temples and all the schools and received the same answer from everyone. That evening, after their dinner, they sat outside in the cool night air with the Swami and recounted to him the discouraging results of their day-long search. Why not stay here, the Swami said, after listening to their story. You are very kind, Swamiji, said Nivriti, and we are very grateful for your hospitality, but... Now listen, the Swami interrupted. You youngsters need a place to stay. I need the company. Besides, there's going to be plenty to do around here now that the hot weather's on the way. There will be many people stopping here, wanting something to eat, and parents wanting to leave their children here with me. We'll have a little school here. We'll have plenty to eat. The elders will bring food for the orphans. And there's a huge mango orchard out back. We can put some corn and peppers and squash in the field. What do you say? Please, say you'll stay. I would love for all of you to stay right here. The youngsters looked around at one another. Finally, Gyanitsvar said, Well, if you still want us to stay, even after tasting Mukti's cooking, then I guess you've got it coming. <laughs> they all laughed as Muktabai squealed and pretended to pull Gyanadev's hair. It was decided they had a new home, one in which they would remain for the next six wonderful years of their lives. About to wrap up, <clears throat> Gyaneshwar becomes enlightened.
They were quiet years for the youngsters. Gyanadev and Nivriti grew into manhood. Muktabai became a living goddess of beauty and grace. And Sopan became strong in body and mind. Swami Satchidananda had never in his life been so happy as he was with his newly adopted family. And now that they were free to devote themselves entirely to their sadhana, their search for God, all the children had become filled with knowledge and light. People from nearby villages had begun making pilgrimages to visit the little monastery where the young yogis dwelt. And there was always a cheerful welcome from the Swami and a ready cup of tea and a smile from the lovely Muktabai. If someone needed solace or advice, they would come and talk with any of the children or the Swami and would leave feeling refreshed with their faith and confidence restored. Some came just to spend some time in the holy and peaceful atmosphere of the monastery and temple grounds. This by itself seemed to answer their questions and resolve confusions. There was always enough to eat and enough to provide for necessities. Those who came usually brought a little gift for the monastery, a basket of fruit, a bag of flour, a coconut, and there was always plenty to share as more and more of the townspeople came to know of the rare family of orphans and the good Swami who lived in the little building. Sopan was responsible for keeping the place clean and beautiful, but his greatest interest was in tending the orchard and the small garden which he created in the back. He grew spinach and green beans, cauliflower and eggplant, and okra as well. He seemed never to tire of working and never to be quite at ease unless he was. He was a true karma yogi, entirely devoted to the service of God in the form of his family and the others who came along. He had found his own way to be very happy. And all who saw him remarked how cheerful and sweet he always seemed, how kind and loving to everyone. Muktabai had now entered those years when most young girls become vain, impertinent, and flirtatious. But Mukti was no ordinary girl. She was entirely self-possessed, always considerate, gracious, and never presumptuous. The truth is, she simply had no interest in the prospect of marriage or in any kind of familiarity which would take her mind from the joys she felt in the love and service of God through others. She longed to merge like Radha with the adorable Krishna. She longed to serve like Sita, the divine Rama. Yet, she truly felt just as fortunate and blessed as Radha or Sita in her role as sister, friend, and servant to her divine brothers, who seemed to her the very incarnation of Rama and Krishna in this world. She loved, like them, to meditate in the early morning 
to offer worship with flowers and kumkum powder in the temple and to spend the day in service, loving God and offering him her heart with every thought. Who, she wondered, could ever wish for more than this? Her brother, Nibriti, was the quiet one. He felt still such a strong bond to his guru, Gahininav, that he thought almost continually of him, sensing his presence with him at all times. He reflected often on the teachings he had received at the feet of his master, and often reminisced on their many private times together in the hidden cave conversing the deepest of subjects. He lived for nothing but his periods of deep meditation and the divine experiences which came to him unbidden in these times. He felt no attraction at all to the world and regarded it with supreme detachment. The extraordinary peace and joy which he derived from his prolonged periods of meditation far outweighed any delight he had ever found through his senses. His inner joy was so full, no amount of occurrences in the outer world could either add to or detract from. parade of the world he viewed like a magic lantern show of forms which appeared and disappeared as mere images on the screen of the cosmic, while he, the eternal witness, remained blissfully unchanged. In this respect, Ganeshwar was much like Nivriti, so absorbed was he in his inner joy he could sit for hours and hours just watching the play of thoughts, images, and revelations, or engrossed in intense concentration on the ever-fascinating light that hovered just inside his forehead and which revealed to him so many hidden wonders and delights. Indeed, it seems that it was at this wonderfully peaceful time in his life that Yanishvar realized his identity with the universal self. Of course, there is no date of the circumstances of Yanishvar's enlightenment, but the evidence would seem to indicate it occurred around this period from 1287 to 1288. The Gyaneshwar's Gita, which was written in 1290 when he was 19, is sufficient evidence to the wise that Gyanadev had realized the self sometime prior to its writing. He had also obtained considerable learning to substantiate his own experience in the meanwhile and was able, in Gyaneshwar's Gita, to speak with the utmost confidence of the knowledge of the self, both from his own first-hand experiences and from the recorded experiences of his predecessors. Therefore, it is safe to assume that at least a few years elapsed between his own realization and the writing of Gyanishvar's Gita. It is also 
apparent that from Gyaneshwar's perspective, such experience came to him by the grace of his guru and beloved brother, Navriti. We must assume then that Navriti himself had attained samadhi previous to Gyaneshwar's attainment and had closely supervised his yadar Brunger sadhana, encouraging and deeply influencing by his own example, Gyaneshwar's profound longing for God-knowledge. Perhaps it happened something like this. In the early morning, long before dawn, Navriti and Gyandev had bathed silently in the moonlit river and had taken their accustomed seats on the riverbank. Both boys were so inwardly concentrated that not a word was spoken, yet both sensed the extraordinary condition of stillness and intense clarity, which seemed to pervade not only their own consciousness, but also the whole universe on that morning. Ganeshvar's attention was entirely centered on the spreading white light which he could see and feel gathering at the crown of his head. With his eyelids lightly closed and his gaze fixed on that clear, cooling light, his breath became soft and gentle, nearly suspended in the pure silence and calm of his uplifted awareness. Oh, what a pure and perfect state! What sweetness filled his mind and body. He felt balanced, poised on the threshold of absolute purity and clarity of mind. And he looked to the infinite heights of light and silence above with all the desperate longing of his being. O loving Father, lift me up to thyself so that I may know thee and proclaim thee to all thy children. It was a prayer that spoke itself from his soul to the impenetrable light into which he peered. And suddenly, as he leaned with all his concentration into that utter stillness, his mind grew bright with clarity, and he knew the eternity from which he was born. Oh, my God, even I am thine own. I have been like a pebble yearning from the stone from which it was cut, or like a wave yearning for the ocean. Thou art the one in whom all exists. I and thou are not two, but have always been one. How had I imagined that I was separate? or apart, like a man who dreams he's fallen into a ditch and dreams of a cast of thousands to inhabit the dream along with him. I have dreamt I was a player among others in my own drama. I am the dreamer and the dream. All this is myself, and nothing is outside of me ever. I am this universe of worlds upon worlds, drama upon drama. All is me. Yet 
all is but a bubble of my own fantasy. I remain forever pure, free, unmanifest, and unseen, silently upholding in myself this vast array of forms and lives. There is no other, only me. It is life which sings and dances in the millions of forms forever untouched and unchanged. Clearly, he saw the universes emerging from and returning to himself as a breath goes out and is then indrawn again. All was known, all was himself, and he was exquisitely happy alone, containing it all. When at last he raised his eyelids, the daylight had long since come, and here he was once again amid the world of forms. But nothing had changed. It was all himself. Only now he was seeing from the vantage point of one of the forms within his own play. He could see the river flowing by, a sparkling sheet of consciousness. The monastery grounds were likewise consciousness, as was every glistening speck of sand. And there, looking at him, was Nivriti, his own self in the form of brother, guide, and benefactor. Nevriti had been sitting there for some while watching his brother's face, and he knew that young Gyanadev had reached that supreme knowledge, which he had also known. Their eyes showered rays on one another, and they sat smiling deliriously at the living form of God before them. Gyanadev's vision was clouded with tears of joy and gratitude, as he delighted in the shimmering form of Nivriti in front of him. Then he prostrated himself fully on the ground before his brother and saluted him. Om Namo Narayana Jaya Gurudev Jaya Gurudev Well, to wrap up today's episode, after some time, the Swami, Satchidananda, made a comment. He saw Gyaneshwar picking up a copy of Bhagavad Gita. And one night, after the evening meal, everyone was relaxing. When Gyaneshwar brought out the Gita and opened it to the beginning. The Swami, who was sitting nearby, noticed and said, as long as you're beginning it again, and we're all just sitting here, why don't you read it out loud to us and explain it as you go along? Yadishvar laughed. I'll read it, but... I don't think I could explain what Krishna says any better than he does himself. Oh, come on, pleaded Muktabai. You know you can explain it better than anyone. Please do. 
we'll all be very still and listen. Who wants to hear Gyaneshwar comment on the Gita, prompted the Swami. Everyone shouted, yes! And so, Gyaneshwar surrendered and began. First, he read out the passage from the Gita, and then, in his own enthusiastic and delightful way, he elaborated on Krishna's words, elucidating his meaning with great skill and clarity. Every night thereafter, he read a chapter, and at the end of 18 nights, he had completed the entire Gita and completely enthralled his listeners, clarifying some aspects of Krishna's teachings, which even the Swami had not previously understood. And that is how Gyaneshvara's Gita came to be. Next week, we will begin this greatly treasured text. Here on Meditative Living with Swami Shivananda Giri, Sonic over there in Brighton, England, will be in full effect. We will be discussing the text. It will be great fun. This Swami invites you to come and join the ride when we gather again for episode two of Gyaneshvara's Gita on Meditative Living. Om Namo Narayana. Yeah.